Thank you for downloading the weekly sermon from Trinity Reformed Church in Bloomington, Indiana. To find more great content, please check out our website at trinityreformed.org. Enjoy the sermon. Good morning. Welcome, all of you. It's good to be together and to worship the Lord. And this morning, uh, we're in Romans. If you're interested, this is our 69th sermon in Romans. And I thought I'd tell you when it was 70, but now I won't need to because you know the next one will be 70. And we're in, uh, we're moving into a different part of Romans. Romans chapter 10 this morning, the first, sorry, uh, the first four verses of chapter 10. So let us hear the word of God, which is eternally true. Brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is for their salvation. For I testify about them that they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. For not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, They did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Father God, please remove our desire to justify ourselves with our own righteousness and help us, Father, to look in faith to the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Humble us, Father. Now may the words of my mouth and the meditation of every heart here be acceptable in your sight, you who are our strength and our redeemer. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. So if you noticed as we read our text, um, the word them, they and them kept cropping up, and it causes us to say, who is he referring to? Brethren, my heart's desire, my prayer to God for them is for there, although there is, is, uh, is not in the original Greek. That's why it's in italics. It's supplied. And then he says, for I testify about them. Well, the them is his fellow Jews, Okay. And so the Apostle Paul is making statements about a people group. The Apostle Paul is making statements about an ethnic group, about a race. And he's defending himself against charges that he's a man-hater, all right? That he's a misanthrope, that he is angry and wishes ill on the Jews, Now, why would he be accused of having ill will towards the Jews? Well, not because he had read Martin Luther. All right, and that's funny because, you know, everybody today says that anti-Semitism exists because the church has always been anti-Semitic. Well, no, it hasn't. And the Apostle Paul makes that very clear here. He's not anti-Semitic. What he's saying is that I am very concerned for the salvation of my people, the Jews. 
Now, if you hear him saying that here, from the very beginning, he says, my heart's desire, my prayer to God for them is for their salvation. What he's saying is, I love these Jews. I love the Israelites. I love my people. I have a heart desire for their salvation. As a matter of fact, my heart's desire towards them is for their salvation. And this is him claiming that he loves them. Okay? But the Jews would say that any attempt to lead them to Jesus is what? It's genocide. That's what a rabbi's son said to me on the airplane as we flew together. We got talking about Jesus, and, you know, he said, look, to evangelize a Jew is to destroy his Jewishness. If you evangelize Jews and they become Christians, they're not Jews anymore. You've destroyed their race. You've destroyed their identity. And, of course, there's truth to this in that Israel does not allow Jews who have converted to Christianity to have the right of return. All right? And why? Well, as they see it, their Jewishness has been destroyed. Now, that's not original with us post-Holocaust. That's what the Apostle Paul was accused of back right when the church started. Everybody saw that the Jews had said, crucify him, crucify him. And then there was a church begun by him and his disciples. And so if you move from the Jews crying out, crucify him, to worshiping Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, you had crossed the great divide. Do you see this? Cross the great divide. And now you were not a Jew. And so anybody promoting Jesus... Anybody calling people to put their faith in Jesus was absolutely rejecting the people of God, the sons of Israel, the Jews. And so the Apostle Paul, all through the book of Romans, he's trying to defend himself against the charge that he's a racist, right? You get this. That he hates Jews. And he says here, Brethren, my heart's desire, my prayer to God for them is for their salvation. And what could be a better proof of love for a people than to pray and work for their salvation? Now, here's a little story. When I was in high school, uh, I still do this, but when I was in high school... I emoted. <laughs> I had emotions. And I told them to my mama. I spent a lot of time in the kitchen telling my mama my emotions. Okay? She put up with me. Well, no, she didn't. So, so here's the story. I fell in love with this tender young girl named Mary Lee Taylor. All right? And... She was yin to my yang. She was, she was perfect because, of course, she was cheerful. And then she read, and so we'd read books together. Oh, and she was cute. Oh, and I just loved her. And so one day I was in the kitchen, and I said to my mother, Mud, that's what we called her. It was our affectionate name, Mud. Hey, Mud, you know what? What, Tim? I love Mary Lee. 
And my mother looked at me with a look of disgust. And she said, you don't love Mary Lee. You don't even know what love is. Never forgot it. So Mary Lee and I uh, were infatuated. At least I was. I don't know about her. She didn't act like it sometimes. but. And so we began, can I dare say it, dating. Don't worry, it was youth group meetings, right? And the years went by. And then Mary Lee broke it off with me. She was up giving her testimony, speaking at the women's retreat up in Indy yesterday. And she wrote out her testimony, and I never write or speak without her hearing what I'm going to say beforehand. It protects you. Trust me. It's good for you. And sometimes she lets me look at what she's going to say before. And so I read this thing. And I read her account of these, these days, you know. She was saying that, you know, she, she sort of flipped out and left Westmont College and decided she wasn't going to be in college anymore. And so she went up to San Francisco, and then she goes up to, to Oregon, you know. And, and then she heard that, and I had been wanting to marry her for years. She heard that, that now I was sort of moving on from her. And... Uh, so she decided she would come home for Christmas. That kind of shook her. Tim, moving on from me? I'm supposed to move on from him, but he's not supposed to move on from me. Right. Now listen, here's why I'm telling you this. I still love Mary Lee, but God had convicted me that she was an idol in my life. <laughs> Are you listening? She was an idol in my life. And God had made it very clear to me that he would put up with no competition for my heart. None. And I mean, for years, that was something I never stopped thinking about. So she cut me off, and of course it was the best thing that ever happened to me. It was, it was awful, painful, awful. And yet it caused me to fall back on God. So now move forward a year or two, and she's heard that I'm moving on. And so she decides to come home and pull me back to her, right? You know? Oh, no! You know, I remember the moment. I didn't know she was coming back, and I look out the front window of my parents' house. <laughs> and it's evening, it's dark, and there's Mary Lee. It's like, oh, no, no. I'm so weak, you know? And so I won't give you the bloody details, but I will tell you that the night came when Mary Lee and I were together outside of the house, and Mary Lee wanted me back. Okay? And all I had to do was say the word. And then I thought to myself, I didn't think about my own idolatry of her. What I thought was, 
That will not be good for Mary Lee's soul. And I realized that if I wanted Mary Lee to be in heaven, and that's how I thought about it at that moment, all I was thinking about was Mary Lee's soul in eternity. And I, I realized that if I, if I went back to her, it would destroy Mary Lee's soul. Now, you might say, how did you know that? I don't know. Sometimes God makes things very clear to you. And so guess what? For the first time in my life, I what? I loved Mary Lee. (laughs) I loved her. And I said, no. I'm not going to cry like I did in the first service. (laughs) And you know, God in his kindness gives the things we love back to us, having destroyed our idolatry. And he gave me Mary Lee. It wasn't for a while. But do you understand my mother saying to him, "You you don't love her. You don't know what love is. That night I learned what love was that you give up something. Because what? Well, because you desire the salvation of the one you love. Do you see this? The Apostle Paul loved his Jews. He loved them. And so he was willing to pray for their salvation and to work for it. And what we now enter into in this text is an account of his love for the Jews. And how does he love them? Well, all through the book of Romans, the way he loves them is by rebuking them and exposing their errors and their sins. And some of you are idolatrous towards your children and your spouse. And so you just go along to get along. You know? Rodney King, can't we all just get along? And you don't love your children. If you make peace with their idolatry and their sin, do you understand what I'm saying? You do not love your children and your husband and wife until what you desire most is their salvation. Don't accept the cheap notions of love that exist in our world today. It's not love. It's indifference. And that's the opposite of love. Right? Are you all with me? You can always make your peace with the sin of your son if you're indifferent to his salvation. But my mother was not indifferent to my salvation. (laughs) Thank God. Thank God. And so the Apostle Paul says... And you remember what he said at the beginning of Romans. He said, brethren, here, my heart's desire and my prayer for them is for their salvation. And back at the beginning uh, of Romans, he said, I am telling the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience testifies with me. I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were a curse separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren. Same theme, isn't it? 
I love the Jews. I would be accursed if that would assure their salvation. Okay? Brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is for their salvation. Verse 2, for I testify about them that they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. So we move here from the love to the helpful thing that he says. Son, you have zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. Okay. This is the way the Apostle Paul sums up the condition of the Jews. Zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. This is the character and the state of the Jews. And you know, the Apostle Paul was a reliable witness because he was a Jew of Jews. He had studied under the most intense Jewish rabbi of the day, Gamaliel. He was, as to keeping the law, he was a Pharisee of Pharisees. Okay? In other words... He was an insider. He was not a Johnny-come-lately, okay? And so when he says they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge, his witness is good. Now, what is zeal? Well, first of all, overwhelmingly, Scripture commends zeal. It's a good thing. Zeal is usually in Scripture attributed to God. And I find that kind of difficult to understand. And the reason is that zeal, we think of zeal as being uh, enthusiasm and action, intense motivation. It used to be called ardor. He was arduous for her, A-R-D, Okay. Uh, zeal is a strong determination to do something. And so if you think about God having zeal, it doesn't really make sense because God is act. God is resolve. God is omniscient. God is omnipotent. How do you talk about a particular commitment to see something through with God? <laughs> he spoke and it came into existence. Let there be light and there was light. Did he have zeal for the light? And yet that's how scripture speaks of God. It says that the zeal of the Lord will accomplish this. So obviously zeal with us is something different than than the zeal of God, okay? What is zeal? Well, you'll find a number of different things being spoken of. Enthusiasm and action, intense motivation, strong determination to do something. Now, you know that it's said that no man is a hypocrite in his pleasures. Have you ever heard that? No man is a hypocrite in his pleasures. He may be a hypocrite other places, but watch his pleasures and you're seeing the real man. Well, if that's the truth, then no man is a hypocrite in his zeal. All right? Zeal will out. Now, this is another place we have trouble today because... And, and bear with me here, but I don't, think, I don't think there is any zeal in any of us anymore. I believe that zeal is dead in this generation. 
Okay, now, you can answer in a couple ways. Number one, you can say, oh no, look at the zeal all across our country against racism. And you just proved my point. There's actually no zeal against racism. What there is is zeal to promote ourselves as being against racism. And I've found in my life those two things are different things. There's no pain in showing myself to be opposed to racism. There is a lot of pain in opposing racism. Okay? I, my whole life, I've been around whites who talk about being opposed to racism. I don't give you a plug nickel for any of it. Not a plug nickel. <laughs> Sorry to disillusion you. And so, no, we don't have zeal against racism. All right? And yet, I don't think there's anything that people would say there are more zealots on a bandwagon against anything in America today is racism. So it would be what we would claim proves that we are a generation that has zeal. And I say, no. Okay, racism is not going to end because of this present day. Now, second, here's my second proof that zeal doesn't exist today. Have you noticed that we always talk a lot about the thing we don't have any of? And if you think about it, there, there are few words that have been as popular as long as the word passion. And the reason we keep talking about passion is we have none. <laughs> you know, I always tell people, you know, you think we have passion today, right? I do. I am so passionate about pruning my toenails. Now, why do I say that? Well, I'm saying it to show you the inane, stupid things we claim to have passion. I am so passionate about uh, Kentucky bluegrass. I am so passionate about uh, bobby pins. <laughs> bobby pins are my pat. I mean, I you can't. I mean, I mean the things people say they're passionate about. It's ridiculous. Why do we talk about passion all the time? It didn't used to be that way. Why do we talk about it? Well, it's aspirational. We have satiated. We have eaten so much that. If we take another bite, no matter what the good is, it'll come out our nostrils. We're rich, we're proud, we're fat. We have an American passport. And there's nothing that can excite us. And be thankful I'm not mentioning sexuality. William Golding, the author, said that he did not like a man that had zeal for nothing. Ask yourself the question, what do you have zeal for? Do you have zeal for wine? Do you have zeal for naked flesh? What do you have zeal for? Zeal for bread making? Zeal for jewelry? Zeal for Toyotas? Fords? 
Chevys? Have I hit it yet? Do I need to keep going? Jeeps? Am I okay? All right. How about tractor? You have zeal for tractor? You have zeal for a ZTR? I do. <laughs> I spent so many years cutting grass, three acres every week, all through seminary, there in Massachusetts with a push mower. And so I never get tired of just taking joy in a riding lawnmower. I mean, it just, it never stops, you know. What do you have zeal for? Do you have zeal? Now, now be truthful. Do you have zeal for the glory of God? Do you have zeal for the glory of God? Do you have zeal for holiness? Do you have zeal for the church of Jesus Christ, the bride of Christ? Do you know that in all of Scripture, the place that the word zeal pops most out at us is what? It's Jesus cleansing the temple. So we read the prophecy in Psalm 69, for zeal for your house has consumed me. And the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. I have a love affair with sons and fathers. I find myself more and more just saying to sons, love your father. I said it to all the Bailey children this morning as they left church. Brian Bailey needs to be loved by his children. You know, and look at this text where it prophesies about Jesus. Did you read it? It says this. It says, zeal for your house has consumed me, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. Wouldn't it be a revival if the hearts of the sons were turned to their fathers and the hearts of the fathers were turned to their sons? And then the reproach that is lifted up against God the Father Almighty would rest on the sun, and he would own it. Wouldn't that be a wonderful day if today every single person began to honor their fathers? And you say, well, we don't have any honorable fathers. Jesus owned the reproach that was lifted up against his father. And when did he do it? He did it his whole life. But specifically, explicitly, when he went in and flipped the tables and sent the money rolling and used a whip on the men in the temple, stealing. The Bible says that the disciples remembered that it had been said of the Messiah that zeal for his father's house would consume. Remember what he said? My father's house is to be a house of prayer for all nations. <laughs> and the word zeal jumps out at you, doesn't it? Zeal for his father's house. Do you know that in the church today, there is no zeal for God's house? None. And you say, oh, how can you say that? 
And I say, well, because there's no reform. Reform is something we study from 500 years ago <laughs> over in Germany. <laughs> you know, the Reformation. Who is reforming the church today? Have we arrived at a time where the church is so clean it needs no reform? I mean, honestly. Come on. Give me some feedback. Laugh, cry, do something. But no, there's no zeal. We're happy to have the church compromised. Because the ante is downed instead of upped. (laughs) We want the ante to be down. You know, we don't want pressure. We don't want threats. We don't want danger. For heaven's sakes, Tim, do not preach danger. It's gauche. It's it's ill-bred. It's uncivilized. It's impolite. And it's hard. (laughs) <laughs> and, and mostly it's because it's hard. Because what we really want from, from our religious leaders is the same thing the Jews wanted from them. They wanted a certain zeal for God without knowledge. Right? Didn't somebody famous say that once? <laughs> the Apostle Paul. They had zeal for God, but without knowledge. Do you remember a few years ago we preached through 1 Corinthians? Some of you were here, right? Eric was here. And do you remember how I talked again and again and again about the foolishness of the wisdom of man? Do you remember that? And I just went on and on in a university community where people study, people have professors, people have educational degrees. And the Apostle Paul is relentless in saying that man's wisdom is foolishness to God. And and living in Bloomington, you feel so much the pull of the university for us to honor knowledge, right? For us to honor wisdom, for us to think that knowledge and wisdom are degrees, And so I preached again and again and again, do not get sucked into educationalism, right? You remember this. And so we can almost feel pious in this church, having gone through Corinthians, in looking down on knowledge, right? But would you please notice that the Apostle Paul says the problem with the Jews is not that they didn't have zeal for God, they did but that that zeal was not led and infused by knowledge. In other words, know nothingism, K-N-O-W dash N-O-T-H-I-N-G-I-S-M, know nothingism is not spiritual. Because you can have a zeal for God and you can be without hope in this life and eternally. You can be zealous for God and have no hope of heaven. Okay, are you all with me? It's very clear from him saying, he wishes they were saved, but they're not. And then he describes, and they have zeal for God, but 
not in conformity with knowledge. Not in accordance with knowledge. And so what is needed in terms of knowledge? Well, let me read to you how the Apostle Paul describes himself before he had knowledge. And here's how he describes himself in Philippians 3. If anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, he's a Jew, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to the righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. And so this is the Apostle Paul. He is so zealous for God and for the, for, for the glory of God that he persecuted the church of Jesus Christ. All right. But then we read in Acts 9, beginning with verse 1, now Saul, Paul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, in other words, against the church, went to the high priest and asked for letters from him to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found, the Apostle Paul found, any belonging to the way, that's what they called the Christian faith at that time, the church, the way, okay? Both men and women, he might bring them bound in chains to Jerusalem. As he was traveling, it happened that he was approaching Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him, and he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul. Why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. And so there on the road to Damascus, God, in Jesus Christ, stopped Paul in his tracks. Remember, he blinded him. And he showed the Apostle Paul that his zeal for God was not according to knowledge because the Apostle Paul never thought that he was persecuting God. Who are you, Lord? And so what happened? Well, the Apostle Paul became knowledgeable. And from that day on, he considered rubbish. That list of good traits and accomplishments that we just read in Philippians. Being a Pharisee, being a Hebrew, a student of Gamaliel, righteous by the law. He counted it dung. For what? Well, so that he could know Jesus Christ and the righteousness of God. In other words, On that day, the Apostle Paul realized that all his righteousness was his filthy rags. And it had caused him, his pursuit of righteousness had caused him to be an enemy of God and to persecute the people of God. And in persecuting the people of God, to persecute God himself. And so he he turned from his righteousness to the righteousness of God. 
That was the knowledge missing to the Jews, was God's righteousness, okay? All right, okay? And so he continues in verse 3, for not knowing, imperfect knowledge, for not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject, they did not submit themselves to the righteousness of God. Now, what a wonderful verse. Everybody says that the center of Romans is the next verse, 4. But I mean... I don't know. I have trouble choosing between verse 3 and verse 4. Because isn't this a perfect description of me? It's perfect. For not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish my own, okay, I did not subject myself. I did not submit to the righteousness of God. Isn't that a perfect description of you? What is this righteousness of God that's being spoken about here? Now, there are a lot of arguments about it. If you open commentaries, I mean, the ink that's spilled or the digital waves, if you read it online, over what is God's righteousness? You know, what is he talking about here, God's righteousness? And so what they'll do is they'll try to make you choose between various options. Okay? And you know that when we use language, many words have several meanings from which you have to choose, right? Fly. I'll fly away, Oprah. I'll fly away. When I'll fly away. And so I was on Craigslist last night, and there was a pig with wings over a bell that you could hang in your yard. And I mean, I almost bit. I just loved it, a big pig with wings. But then there was this... There was this... uh, There was this little fly on the wall that warned me that Mary Lee wouldn't approve. (laughs) And so I decided that I would uh, not buy the flying pig. the righteousness of God. You have to choose. Is it God's righteousness, his holiness? Or is it the righteousness of Jesus Christ that we look to for salvation? It has to be one or the other. 
And this is the way scholars will, will force choices on you that you should never allow. So the first thing we have to say about righteousness is God defines righteousness, right? God defines righteousness. God is righteous. The Bible says, you must be holy for I, the Lord, your God, am holy. All right? And so we know that in God there is no sin, right? We all know this. He can't even look at sin. And so the minute we hear the righteousness of God, what we know we're dealing with is we're dealing with a holy God. And so the holiness of God would be a good synonym for it. But then you get thinking a little bit about it, and you realize that for us sinful men and women, the righteousness of God is most visible how? It's most visible in the Ten Commandments. God records his character in the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments are not just some frivolous idea God came up with on Mount Carmel. They are a statement in words of his perfections, of his perfect holiness and character. All right? And so the righteousness of God is God's character. He is perfect and holy. The righteousness of God is God's law, which is a representation of his perfect character. All right? But the righteousness of God is also Jesus Christ, who came and lived among us and was spotless. Right? And so don't try to divide up Scripture and its meanings and have arguments with people because language doesn't work like that. Language is entirely comfortable with us having multifaceted thoughts as we read a word that an author chose. And generally authors aren't stupid. I don't know what, Elizabeth, are you with me on that? Editors, though, are even smarter. (laughs) She works as a freelance editor, okay. But I mean, authors aren't stupid. They know when they use words. The Apostle Paul, ding dong, he probably knew that people would say, now, what righteousness is he talking about here? And so here's what the Apostle Paul writes. He says, for not knowing about God's righteousness, but he keeps on going. He says, and seeking to establish their own. So this means that whatever he meant by God's righteousness is in conflict with our establishing our own righteousness. You see that. Not but okay, this is in opposition to this. And so apparently we cannot give ourselves and have faith in the righteousness of God if we're trying to establish our own righteousness. For not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit themselves to the righteousness of God. I have to say, some of you know, some of you don't know, but For what, 10, 11 years now, I've cut my lawn 23 weeks a year is the average, and every single time I've listened to the book of Romans, so that I know our whole neighborhood, (laughs) based upon how much of the book of Romans it takes to do that and this, and I could even tell you about your yard. (laughs) So anyhow, 
of all the things in the book of Romans that grabs me most every time I listen to it, do you know what it is? It's this right here. They did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. Now, why does that grab my attention? Well, it grabs my attention because it was the condition of the people of God. His chosen people refused to submit themselves to the righteousness of God. And every time I hear that, I think to myself, yikes! Every single time I hear it, I think, yikes! How would it be that anybody would choose, refuse to submit themselves to the righteousness of God? I mean, what a hopeless case. I will not submit myself to the righteousness of God. And yet, the people who do this are people who are zealous for God. Think about that. They're zealous for God, and they refuse to submit themselves to God's righteousness. Think about that. It is, it is shaking to think about that. And so it's very important that you see the middle of verse 3, which says, For not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit themselves to the righteousness of God. The, the Greek word is submission. They translate it subjection, but it doesn't have the strength that submission does in English. And so that's the pivot point. The pivot point is seeking to establish their own. And the minute that's said, all of us know why they wouldn't submit to God's righteousness because we are so determined to prove that we're right and that we're good. And listen, brothers and sisters, if you are determined to prove you're good, there is no hope for you eternally. None. God will have no competitors when it comes to righteousness. Either you will love his son, who was the spotless lamb, or you will claim that you have demands on God because of what you've done and who you think you are. And there's no compromise between those positions. In the first service, I talked to Amos. You're. So who should I talk to today? Well. Oh, I can't pick on you every week. So who do you want me to pick on? So now that you're all sitting there hoping I won't pick on you, let let me say this to you. Without naming any names. No, I think I'm going to name Stephen. Stephen, you're a big boy, but you're still a boy. Okay? Until Consti actually says, I do. You're a boy. (laughs) Okay? Stephen, when your mother points your sin out to you and you get angry at her, 
Do you realize why you're doing that? It's because you want to establish your own righteousness. And when you do that, you're an enemy of God. All of you who are children, think of how you arch your neck when your parents rebuke you. Why do you do that? Well, you want to establish your own righteousness. You do not want to have to live by faith. Do you understand that? Because faith has as its object, not your own goodness, but the goodness of God. And once you decide that you have no goodness in you to present to God, then God is your glory, and you don't try to cling so desperately to your own self-righteousness. This is the reason I'm so concerned about conservative reform churches today. We are so determined to show other people how righteous we are. And that has nothing of faith in the righteousness of God. Nothing. Nothing. And so we hire preachers to scratch our ears. And so what do they do? They flatter us. They make us think that we're good. And that's absolutely the opposite of what the Apostle Paul is saying in this text. We're trying to establish our own righteousness, and so we will not submit ourselves to the righteousness of God. Now, how do we do that? Well, we do that by, okay, we do that by tearing God down. And that's what the entire Western world is doing right now. The entire Western world is intent on destroying the righteousness of God. And you say, well, how are they doing that? Because they're destroying the law of God. They're saying that, for instance, sodomy and lesbianism are righteous, are a part of the, the wonderful tapestry of, of gender permutations and diversity. You know what I'm saying? In other words, they're righteous. And so affirm it, affirm it. But God says that same-sex intimacy is an abomination. Quote, abomination, unquote, okay? The entire Western world is intent upon proving its own self-righteousness. And so it is absolutely, absolutely wacko about police brutality, which is evil and wrong and should be punished. Okay, okay. But it doesn't give a rip about the unborn children. 50, 60, 70 million so far in just this country. Come on, people. This is always what comes of trying to establish our own righteousness. We throw out God's big laws and we replace them with a bunch of little petty laws that, that we reassure each other that we're good people because we're opposed to single-use plastic bags. Went down to Mexico, bought a bunch of food in my cart, at the grocery store, we were staying in an apartment, right? Get up to the front. Mexico has outlawed plastic bags. What on earth? And you know, I hate this single-use thing because you wouldn't believe how many times I use plastic bags. You know? I mean, there, I use plastic bags from grocery stores more than I use Ziplocs. You know, I wrap up bacon and I wrap up sausage and, and I put, I mean, 
You wouldn't believe. Go out to the garden, carry a single-use plastic bag. I, I don't know if I'm breaking a law by doing that. I'm, you know. Now, okay, I'm making fun of it. You may be very committed to the, the, the end of single-use plastic bags because of what they do to our oceans and everything, and that's fine, you know. But my point is, do we really think that what makes us righteous is walking into a grocery store with a canvas bag in our hand? And you know the answer to that is yes. And yet God has said he hates bloodshed. And we just blithely drive past Planned Parenthood. It just don't matter. I'm not the one that's having an abortion. It's like, what world do you live in? Do I live in? It's insane. The older you get, the more tired you get. You know, because you're supposed to act as if people have principles. They have zeal. They have passion. They have righteousness. <laughs> it's like you go, uh, no, I don't, you don't. And so what people are doing today is they're tearing down the law of God, which is true righteousness. Okay? Okay? They're pulling God down to their level. They're acting as if what they think is good is what God thinks is good. But that's not enough. Then they go over to themselves and they act as if they're much more capable of righteousness than they actually are. So it's not enough to pull God down to our level. We have to lift our, our level up in order to fool ourselves into thinking that we are moral, that we are righteous, that we are godly. The Bible says that we... Every one of us is not righteous. Is not righteous, not one. The Bible says that our righteousness is as filthy rags to God. The Bible says that we, all of us, are dead in our trespasses and sins. But, and I, I live in Monty Python, okay? I just have this image as I'm preparing to preach on this text. I ain't dead yet. I'm not dead yet. You know, his arms are cut off. His legs are cut. I'm not dead yet. And that's us. We don't need God. When we need him, we'll call on him. Until then, we carry our canvas bags into the grocery store. Our mother rebukes us, and we're furious. How dare she treat me as if I have failings? Now listen to it again. For not knowing about God's righteousness... What is God's righteousness? It is perfect. How do we know what it is? Well, we have the Ten Commandments. Well, I've never killed anybody. Have you ever called anybody a fool? <laughs> well, yeah. So what does that have to do with it? There's no blood. Well, did you remember what Jesus did on the Sermon on the Mount? He opened up the meaning of the Ten Commandments. And he said, you have heard it said that you shall not murder. But I say to you, what? Well, among other things, that any man that calls a man a fool is a murderer. You say, oh, okay. But that was kind of weird. I say, okay, you have heard that it said that you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that any man that looks with a woman with lust in his eye has committed adultery. Oh, 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 oh. Oh, 
oh, ouch. I thought you could look but not touch. No, actually, that's just us pulling God down to our level. That's what you do when you try to establish your own righteousness. You cannot. You cannot. And so you just dispense with the big rules and turn them into little rules and then assure yourself that you're just fine. But you're not. You're not fine. For not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. And this is what we do. This was why the Reformation was needed. In the medieval period, the church had become the greatest promoter of pulling the righteousness of God down and lifting up the possibility of man. And so they had all these different sacraments that you would work, okay? And as you worked them, you would be worthy of heaven if you went to purgatory for a while and got even more perfected. And that's called the doctrine of infusion. It's Rome, and it's actually most of the church that's Protestant today. And what scripture teaches is it's not until you give up your own righteousness that you will look solely to Jesus to be your righteousness. And he, by faith, will talk to me. Come on, talk to me. Anybody? He will impute, not infuse, that's tea and water. He will impute, and when something is imputed to you, it is a foreign object that is placed in you so that God looks at you and sees the righteousness of Jesus Christ. He doesn't see how the righteousness of Jesus Christ has improved you, although it does. But what he sees is the spotless lamb of God whose blood has washed you. And it's not until you refuse any longer to prove your own righteousness that you can have any part in the righteousness of God. They are mutually exclusive. They are absolutely opposed to each other. You cannot prove your own righteousness and have faith in Jesus Christ. Why do you need it? It's humiliating. That's why the Apostle Paul says at the beginning of this letter, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Have you ever wondered why? Why would he say he's ashamed? What's there to be ashamed of in the church in America today? You know? Why would we have to be ashamed of the gospel? For, you know, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. That's cheerful. Well, The reason is that the true gospel leaves you dead in your trespasses and sins, looking to the Lamb of God. 
And let me tell you, brothers and sisters, that is a humiliating place to be. Huh? It is humiliating. Because you give up. You give up. You give up proving that you're good to your wife, (laughs) which is a hopeless work anyhow. Come on, laugh. (laughs) You give up trying to prove your superiority to your children. You are the father and you have a work ethic. And what's wrong with him that he doesn't know how to work? You give up trying to prove to Democrats You give up trying to prove to Republicans. You give up trying to prove to the uneducated or the educated. You give give it up. And you are content to live in humility under Jesus. And the world looks at him, and the world says, that's stupid, (laughs) you know. And you say, well... I know it looks stupid, but I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I just love that statement because it just satisfies me. I am in solidarity with the Apostle Paul. I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Are you? Are you ashamed of Jesus? And then he ends with this statement. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. When you believe in Jesus, the law is over. Now, does that mean that the law has no application? No. The law still reflects the character of God. But you don't hope in it anymore because you know it's hopeless. Jesus is the only spotless lamb. Okay? And so listen. Give yourself to Jesus. Give yourself to Jesus. Give yourself to Jesus. Stop trying to prove your own righteousness. You're not good. You can't be good. That's the nature of the law. It's your schoolmaster to Jesus. It leaves you despairing. And that's not something to be depressed about. That's something to be hopeful about. Oh, finally, I'm despairing. And so I can give it up and love Jesus and have faith in his righteousness. And guess what? You won't be surprised to know that that will please his father. (laughs) You know, God the Father will be honored when you are clothed in the righteousness of his precious son. Because that son worked hard doing the work his father sent him to do. Now, I want to say two things before we end. First of all, I want to warn you that God is opposed 
to good intentions. You know what I mean by good intentions. You know, ignorance of the law is an excuse. Well, we, we were zealous for God. We had good intentions. You know what I'm saying? And because we don't have knowledge, that shouldn't, that shouldn't nullify our good intentions. We were zealous for God. Now think about this. What more could you ask of anybody that, that they're zealous for God? I mean, if that's not good enough, what is? Right? I mean, you get it, right? And everybody believes that good intentions are enough for God. Well, I meant well. And this is what Calvin says at this point. He says, for a man to pretend when he is rebuked that he meant no harm is commonly held to be an excellent and very proper excuse. Now, this is five centuries ago, okay? Very many people at the present time are prevented by this pretext from giving their whole effort to searching out the truth of God. Because they think that any wrong that they've committed through ignorance, if they didn't mean evil, but were just ignorant, that anything that they have committed, any wrong they've committed out of ignorance with good intentions, will be excused. Okay? And yet, none of us can excuse the Jews for having crucified Christ. Are you with me? None of us can excuse the Jews for having treated the apostles with barbarous cruelty. With attempting to destroy and extinguish the gospel of Jesus Christ. We're not excusing them for that. Although they had the same defense that we have. They did it out of zeal for God. They had good intentions. And then he ends by saying this. He says, if we seek God from the heart, Let us follow the way by which alone we have access to him. And then he quotes Augustine. He says, it's better to limp in the right way than to run with all our might in the wrong way. So I want you to hear that warning about good intentions. No, just no. You must read the Bible. You must grow in your knowledge of the bread of life. It is not pious to be ignorant. God has given you his word and the doctrines contained therein for your salvation. Okay. And one last thing. Did you notice that this whole section about the Apostle Paul praying for and working for the salvation of the Jews comes immediately after the most intense doctrine of election and predestination, all that stuff that there is in all of Scripture, which is chapter 9. So I want you to think about this. He goes on and on about God choosing us, and then as soon as he gets done giving the most intense teaching on God's choosing of us, he then talks about his desire to see the Jews saved. Right? 
It's happened to the best of us. Don't worry about it. We don't expect anything different from Baptists. <laughs> he's, he's, he's a Baptist pastor, and we love each other. <laughs> so listen. Think about the fact that you don't know who God has chosen, right? Right? None of us know who God has chosen. And the fact that God lifts some up out of the miry put, as it says in Psalms, and sets our feet on a high rock, and says that we cannot come to him unless he draws us, is no justification for us hardening our heart towards the Jews. Think about how many people who are Christians have been opposed to the Jews without any charity or love. And if you were to talk to them, they'd say, well, yeah, look at all the generations that have gone by and there's no hope for them. There's no hope for them. They're enemies of God. They said his blood on us and on our children. Remember that? And so we must notice that this comes right after the doctrine of God's decrees. And it is in no way contradictory to that doctrine. You and I are to give ourselves to the most hopeless cases. Without reservation. Knowing that God loves the great reversal. He loves to make his own glory evident by choosing somebody like Tim. Right. Somebody like you. So give glory to God and love the lost. Father, we pray now as we come to the Lord's table that those here who have been putting their faith in themselves will put their faith in the blood of Jesus, your son. And that we will be hopeless about our own righteousness, trusting only in the righteousness of God in Jesus Christ, we pray in his name. Amen.